traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption. This is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell. I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. I'm kidding, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this gun with through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order! And you we had a great time at the Blue Jays home opener last night, the family and I. Lots of home runs, and of course the Jays won by a score of 9-3 to three over the Detroit Tigers. And I must say the recent renovations at the Rogers Center look great, but the best part of opening night... There was nothing woke about it. No virtue signaling, land acknowledgements, no messaging around diversity, equity, and inclusion, no awkward reworking of the Canadian or American national anthems uh, in order to insert the usual progressive claptrap. Uh, the first pitch was thrown out by former Blue Jay great Fred McGriff. Um, members of our armed forces unfurled an enormous Canadian flag onto the field. It was, from beginning to end, a great night for baseball, and only baseball, as it should be. So who knows? Maybe these virtue-signaling execs in, the, in Major League Sports are finally getting the message. We just want to watch our sports in peace, minus the divisive woke messaging. But it's early. It's only one game. 
one swallow doth not a summer make. Do you know that expression, Jacob or Declan? One swallow doth not a summer make? All right, look it up. It's an Aesop's fable. So a young man spends all his money gambling and luxurious living until the only thing he has is basically the the cloak on his back to keep off the cold weather. And then he sees a, a swallow fly past on an unusually warm day, and he concludes that spring has come because he saw a swallow, and he sells his cloak in order to be able to place one more bet, one more gambling bet. And so not only does he lose the bet, but the weather turns cold again and he finds the swallow frozen to death. And then he blames the swallow for deceiving him. So one swallow doesn't mean spring or summer has arrived. You need a whole flight of swallows. That's right. A flight of a a flight of swallows, not a flock a flight. Do you know what a, um, a flock of crows is called Jacob or Declan? It's called a murder. That's right. A murder of crows. Did you know that, Declan? Declan's giving me the thumbs up. Isn't that cool? A murder of crows. What about a group of owls? Do you know what a group of owls is called? You like this. A parliament. A parliament of owls. Anyway, I digress. What was I saying? What was I? Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, one baseball game entirely devoid of woke nonsense uh, doesn't necessarily mean major league sports execs are finally getting it that Sports fans don't uh, want to hear about their woke inanities. Uh, I do think the woke execs at Anheuser-Busch might be getting the message. We'll see. Their stock fell over 3.5% on Monday following a backlash to the company's partnership with transgender influencer and activist Dylan Mulvaney. This is a man pretending to be a woman who is suddenly being featured on cans of Bud Light beer. And, of course, he's also promoting the Nike sports bra. That's right. A man promoting the Nike sports bra for women. Anyway, following uh, Dylan's announcement that he would be featured on the Bud Light beer can to commemorate his quote, end quote, one year anniversary. Sorry, his uh, one year anniversary of his quote, end quote, transition. Uh, musician Kid Rock posted a video on social media of himself shooting his Bud Light can Bud Light cans uh, for target practice. And uh, country star Travis Tritt announced he would no longer sell Budweiser at his concerts. And a number of bars and pubs have also announced they'll be no longer carrying the brand. But Budweiser is a huge brand. It's um, Warren Buffett would say it has a brand moat around it. I mean, it is, it's the king of beers. Even with the hit to their market cap, they're still outselling all their competitors. But it's early. We'll see what happens to the stock price. Get woke, go broke. Um, but I'm, I'm not a fan of boycotts, I must say. I'm a, I'm a huge supporter of boycotts. So rather than cancel someone or a company because, I mean, that's what the left does, I'd much rather think, Uh, in terms of supporting companies and small businesses and individuals whose values align with mine. So, and it takes a bit of research and time, but this is how we construct a parallel society. Support individuals and businesses with traditional and conservative values. Spend your money there. That's called a boycott. 
I'd like to see a beer company issue a commemorative uh, beer can to celebrate Riley Gaines. I'll tell you that much. Former University of Kentucky NCAA swimmer who is standing up for real women, biological female adult humans, standing up for real women's sports and real women's rights and real women's safety and privacy. Incidentally, Riley Gaines is the official woman of the month here on the Richard Sarah Show. Uh, oh, I want to share this. This is a, an article from the Washington Examiner. And I'll be talking about this topic again in hour two with Toronto Sun crime columnist Brad Hunter. The article is about a professor of criminology who has suddenly quit his $190,000 a year position at Florida State University after he was accused of fudging crime and race data in order to further a particular narrative and make racism seem worse than it is. So in 2011, uh, Professor Eric Stewart co-authored a study that purported to show that as the black and Hispanic populations grew, the public increasingly demanded longer discriminatory sentences for black and Hispanic criminals. That's the, that was the study. The problem is the data from the study showed no such thing. And Stewart allegedly solved this problem by changing the data and publishing a final product that didn't reflect the original work. And this problem was brought to the co-author's attention eight years later, eight years. Only one of them, Justin Pickett of um, State University of New York in Albany, was willing to pursue the matter to its logical endpoint and expose what, as he argued in a 27-page essay, definitely looks like something much worse than just a few honest mistakes. And then he went on to list the problems with the study. The article reports 1,184 respondents, but actually there were only, there were only 500. The article reports 91 counties, but actually there are 326. Uh, the article describes respondents that differ substantially from those in the data. The article reports two significant interaction effects, but actually there are none. The article reports many other findings that do not exist in the data. The standard errors are stable in one published article, but not in the actual data or in articles published by other authors using similar modeling techniques with large samples. Anyway, it goes on. There's about eight, eight different um, problems, he says, with the study, which is yeah, this is pretty serious stuff. Now, the good news is the actual data suggests the country is not so racist after all, or at least not in the specific manner that the original paper had claimed. No, people do not demand heavier sentences for black or Hispanic defendants just because the black and Hispanic populations around them are growing. The bad news is that the information had been twisted and manipulated like so many media narratives related to race in a way calculated to sow additional distrust and resentment. Why? Because there is a publicity reward for publishing such results, true or false. After Pickett made his concerns public, Stewart complained to the resulting committee of inquiry that Pickett had, quote, lynched me and my academic career, end quote. This is the Washington Examiner uh, column I'm reading from, by the way. Like any race grifter, Stewart believed he could get away with saying things like this because he's black. And the committee incredibly took a hint and let him off the hook without even demanding to examine his original data. The three-member panel gave him the benefit of the doubt that this was just a case of simple error, not dishonesty. Only later, after a sixth Stewart paper had to be retracted, 
was a serious investigation launched, and now Stewart is off to pursue new opportunities. The lesson? First, don't put your faith in conclusions drawn by the social sciences. As in this case, they can be printed, cited in hundreds of other papers for decades, and then abruptly retracted. Secondly, there is an underlying culture of cheating, dishonesty, and covering for one another at some of America's top universities, which should only reinforce the first point. Finally, the racialist ideology that now permeates academia creates a culture of fear and cover-ups. Most people know they should do the right thing when they come across an academic such as Stewart, but the stewards of this world have figured out that you can silence honest people just by flinging accusations of racism at them. How many other would-be witnesses are out there intimidated, allowing academic fraudsters to poison the culture while growing plump and comfortable? Finally, Though a bit of a happy news, sometimes the bad guys lose. Washington Examiner, again, we'll be talking about this uh, fudging of the crime and race data with uh, Toronto Sun columnist Brad Hunter in hour two. All right, coming up uh, on the big Edward R. Murrow award-winning broadcast, uh, last order of business in hour two, this day in rock history with Jeremiah Tittle, co-host of the 500 podcast. We'll take a, a look at a pivotal album release for Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band that happened on this day back in 1976. Brad Hunter, as I mentioned, national crime columnist, true crime author, will be here. Hour two. Also hour two, Toronto mayoral candidate Nia Singh will be here to talk about his plan to make the TTC safer. Uh, we took the TTC last night, by the way, to the game and home after about 1030 and without incident, I'm happy to say. Uh, this hour... We push back against the cult of climate change with Tony Heller. Now, I mentioned last night's ball game. There were, what, five, six home runs in the game? Well, there is an actual tie-in to climate change with baseball. The climate change cult says we're seeing more home runs in baseball because of, you guessed it, climate change. <laughs> I can't. I can't even. It is to laugh. Uh, but coming up first... Bit of a bombshell yesterday with the CEO and the entire board of the Trudeau Foundation. They just up and quit. It has everything to do with the uh, largesse, the $200,000 plus gifted to the foundation from a Chinese billionaire at the behest of the communist Chinese regime. But naturally, Justin sees it differently. It's those people in the conservative party creating divisiveness. Again, it is to laugh. Tom Korski from Blacklock's Reporter is next with that story. The Richard Serrett Show off and running for Wednesday, April the 12th, 2023. Facta non verba. We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. The uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation found itself in a little bit of a sticky situation after a uh, Globe and Mail reporter discovered a $200,000 donation from a Chinese billionaire was given to the foundation at the behest of the Chinese communist government. This was part of a, a an alleged plot by Beijing to influence Trudeau, who was uh, the newly minted liberal leader. About a month uh, ago, the uh, board at the Trudeau Foundation announced that they had decided to uh, give the donation back. Then yesterday, the CEO of the Trudeau Foundation and uh, most of the board just up and quit, citing politicization of this whole scandal. 
Here with more, Tom Korski, Managing Editor, Blacklocks Reporter. Hey, Tom, how are you? Well, thank you, Richard. Can you, first of all, give us a bit of a, a, a primer here? What does the, the Trudeau Foundation do? What are they? They were set up back in uh, 2002 by then a majority liberal government. Uh, John Cretchen was prime minister in the day. It was set up as a private foundation. What was the point? It was supposed to be like a Rhodes Scholarship Program for Canada. It was. This was said so at the time. Well, Cretchen did something interesting. In his 2002 budget, he uh, had Parliament vote $125 million endowment to the foundation, $125 million tax dollars as an endowment for the foundation, and they were going to use the interest. This was going to keep them going for many, many, many years. Use the interest to pay scholarships for our brightest and best. And that was kind of the idea. Okay. So along comes this Chinese billionaire. Uh, and I believe the Globe and Mail reported that this two hundred there was two hundred thousand dollars given to the foundation, and another eight hundred thousand dollars was it? Uh, it was given to was it uh, McGill University or a, a, a university in, in Montreal? University uh, of Montreal. That's Univ- right. Right, University of Montreal. So it, it later came out that this this billionaire gave this money at the behest of the communist chinese i think that it was even indicated that they were going to they were going to reimburse this billionaire so in in other words the money came from the chinese government the communist chinese then uh, after this comes to light the foundation announces they're giving it back uh but there there's some um there's some i don't know question as to whether the money actually was refunded do we know whether it was given back for sure no, we don't. And you're, you're not going to get the answers now that the board and well, pretty much the entire senior management of the foundation has quit. Richard, I would only point out, when this money was given in 2016, this was not some sort of secret. The Chinese billionaire called a news conference. He gave a speech to praise Pierre Trudeau. You'll never guess who showed up. The prime minister's brother, Alexander. Mm. He showed up for photos so they could all enjoy, and the CEO of the, of the Trudeau Foundation, they could all enjoy the speech and the money, and they posed for photographs, and, the, and you, know, they, they, you know, with the check, and, and, and a lot of smiles, and everyone was really happy. Well, you have to be pretty obtuse to question, you know who showed up? China's consul in Montreal, and there was a diplomat from the embassy here in, in Ottawa, Come on. Oh, my heavens, to now discover, you know, six years later, to suddenly discover that the Communist Party of China was somehow involved. Come on. So Justin Trudeau says, I have no, I think the term he used was intersection uh, with the foundation. First of all, should we believe him? And two, uh, I mean, is this kind of a, is, can we look at this as a classic, you know, Pay and pay for play. In other words, to gain access to the, uh, the to the prime minister with this donation, or do we take him at his word that he, you know he, he has nothing to gain by this donation? There's no intersection with the foundation with the prime minister. So why was his brother there? Let's be frank. We we there's a lot of and, and these are plausible questions that could be posed by rational people. Number one, why are we given $125 million of taxpayers' money? We're not giving it to war widows. We're not giving it to orphans. We're giving it to the Trudeau Foundation. Why? 
Why is that a wise expenditure of public funds when hospital emergency rooms are closing? Well, you know, even at the day in 2002, it was controversial. There was a federal audit of a lot of foundations that were set up. Billions were paid out. It was seen as kind of scammy. It was seen as a way of taking taxpayers' money, directing it to foundations that did not operate with parliamentary scrutiny. This was said by auditors and MPs at the day. These were not just conservatives. Sheila Fraser, famous auditor general, New Democrat MPs in the day said, what, why are we spending money on this? Second point, it doesn't really matter if there was, you know, a you can see the line that goes from A to B. Here's the prime minister's brother. He gets the grant. And then later there's a secret meeting. That's not the point. Somebody believed there was influence. And his name was Zhang Bin. He was the billionaire. And so did the China's, uh, Chinese consul in Montreal. And so did a counselor from the Chinese embassy in Ottawa. That's why they showed up. They're not showing up for photographs for the hell of it, Richard. They thought this was pulling strings because guess what? That's just how it works in the motherland. That's the problem. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Are you ready for a rewarding career in the electrical industry? Quality Electric of the Coastal Carolinas, QECC, is looking for qualified electricians and electrical helpers to join its Charleston team. QECC offers guaranteed full-time hours, make up to $30 per hour with possible performance bonuses and career growth opportunities. Enjoy benefits like health insurance, dental and vision coverage, 401k plans, and more. If you're a motivated, experienced electrician, this job is for you. QECC is an equal opportunity employer. For all job inquiries, send email to hr at qeccinc.com. Tom, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and we'll talk about the the mass resignation yesterday at the Trudeau Foundation and uh, claims that this is about politicization. Trudeau saying it's those people. He likes that those two words, those people in the conservative party that are to blame. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. Coming up next segment, I'm going to uh, open the phone lines. In fact, they're open now if you want to jump on board and join the conversation. 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. Right now talking about the Trudeau Foundation's CEO and board of directors abruptly resigning yesterday, weeks after admitting to accepting a $200,000 bribe, I mean donation, from Communist China. Tom Korsky is here from Black Locks Reporter. Support independent media, blacklocks.ca. So Trudeau uh, is saying that this is all about uh, those people are to blame, the conservatives trying to sow dissent and divisiveness and so forth and, and politicize this whole thing. Uh, your thoughts on on that, Tom? 
It's interesting. Well, he, he stated he doesn't want a public inquiry. This is yet one more argument for a public inquiry. And I think everyone, every fair-minded person, and I believe this, can see there is no substitute for a public inquiry to very serious questions about Chinese influence in our parliament. It's that, it's that raw. But let's get down to the brass tacks, Richard. You know, these are staggering sums, and you hear then people say, well, look, at this is political. This is, your tr- this is a toxic argument. What are you implying? There's a lot of bluster and indignation going around. I'm going to tell you a, a story. There's a law. It's called the Conflict of Interest Act for MPs, and there's a companion Conflict of Interest Code. It states that an MP must report a $250 gift To the Commissioner of Ethics, it must be reported it is mandatory. What do you get for $250? A bag of groceries, maybe one Leafs ticket, (laughs) a car mat. Who thinks that a member of parliament can be bribed for car mats? MPs do, Richard. That's why they made it a law. So when you hear about these fabulous six-figure gifts from Chinese entrepreneurs, or you hear about MPs who are saying, well, maybe I got a campaign contribution. Due process, due process. That's not the law. These people are held to a standard of ethics that has to be in the top rung. It cannot be in the lower 10% of the citizenry. You have to have a public inquiry. Parliament has to get to the bottom of this. We're also hearing uh, from former foundation uh, employees, I guess, or directors that are saying, yeah, at the time we thought this whole thing stinks. Uh, the, the, the ones that resigned yesterday saying, oh, this is a, it's become political. It's, you know, we can't do our job anymore. But, but oh. those who oh. came before, those who came before <laughs> saying we knew at the time this thing stinks to high heaven. Politicization, they said. They resigned en masse because of politicization. There's a former prime minister's name on the building, and the Chinese consul showed up for your ribbon cutting with the prime minister's brother. I'm sorry, what a part of politics did they not understand? You're never going to get a straight answer until you start putting people under oath, Richard. Everyone well, the, knows that. You well, the have, other thing you that have you to point out. Document. Right. Well, the other thing that you point out in your article at blacklocks.ca is that the access to information doesn't apply to this foundation. Well, and the comment was made, even if subsequently there have been amendments, you're not going to get those facts or access to information. Why was it not a matter of, of public reporting in their annual report from the foundation? By the way, $200,000, Zhang Bin, home address, Beijing. Uh, you could look in their annual reports. Those are available online. You're not going to see that. They disclosed what they wanted to disclose. This is what upset MPs. If you give $125 million dollars to a federal agency, it is absolutely subject to parliamentary scrutiny, access to information. Any citizen can ask for their books. It's your money. When it goes to the foundation, guess what? They're going to tell you what they want to tell you. And right now they are claiming they didn't know that when someone shows up from the Chinese embassy, that that means there's politics involved. So I know I, I ask you this, I think, every time you come on, but and I'm sounding like a broken record. But here we are weeks after uh, Parliament has uh, their motion demanding a public inquiry. Uh, still, the uh, the prime minister is ragging the puck. Now we have this. We have a former director, uh, the, the guy that used to run the foundation, 
David Johnson is a special rapporteur. He's supposed to be uh, <clears throat> questioned before Parliament. Um, I mean, how much longer can we go on without a public inquiry? Well, I know, and it seems like there's been this odd lapse and inertia. And the Prime Minister's office may have used that to their advantage. Guess what happens Monday? The House of Commons is back in session all the way until the third week of June. They have a lot of work to do. And one of their chores that they have assigned to themselves is getting to the bottom of this. I would be surprised if there's not a motion to either compel an inquiry now or hold the prime minister in contempt for not abiding for the motion that's already passed. Everyone agrees on this except the prime minister's immediate caucus members and employees. Pollsters are telling them the country's not going to stand for it. It's a G7 country. You're talking about serious crimes. We must get the truth. All right. We'll uh, we'll watch on Monday when Parliament convenes with uh, interest. Tom, Kor- or, uh, Tom Korsky, Managing Editor, Blacklocks Reporter. Again, blacklocks.ca. Tom, thank you as always. Thank you, Richard. 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600, the number to get on board and the phone lines now available to you. We'll talk when we come back. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. 289-275-9600-289-275-9600. Just a few minutes to take your calls, and we can talk about anything you'd like. If you want to talk about the Trudeau Foundation and the CEO and the board of directors abruptly resigning, we can do that. If you want to talk about the... Um, oh, you know, I didn't I didn't have a chance to uh, grab the audio for this, but did you see that impromptu? Well, not impromptu, but it was a rather hastily arranged interview between that BBC uh, so-called journalist and um, Elon Musk. And. My word. Elon Musk just destroyed that journalist. <laughs> he was trying to make it uh, sound like Elon Musk was fomenting hate on Twitter And yet, when pressed, he could not produce a single solitary example of hate speech on Twitter since he took over. And then Musk pushed back and asked, oh, because the the journalist, uh, the BBC journalist asked Musk about changing the, um, I guess, the rules in terms of what information regarding COVID uh, could be placed on Twitter. And sometimes uh, if you would if you were to post something on Twitter prior to Elon Musk taking over, you would get this label, you know, about misinformation or for more information, go here, or go there. In other words, don't trust. Any information about covid except coming from the you know approved government agencies or approved government mouthpieces in the media. Well, Elon kind of relaxed those rules. Because there was so much suppression of uh, and 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 um, censorship of actual esteemed experts who had a contrary position on COVID. So Elon Musk was asked about that, and he pushed back and said, "Well, what about the BBC? You're you're responsible for." putting out a lot of misinformation regarding COVID. Anyway, the, uh, the journalist just had his hat handed to him. It was, uh, 
It was uncomfortable, almost uncomfortable to watch, but good for Elon Musk. All right. Uh, let's see. We have someone calling in, but I don't. I can't let him into the room here. I guess he, I guess his call is still being screened. Now he's dropped off. All right. 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. How about this? Um, our good friend Elie Canten-Nontel from True North reporting this. An Ottawa Carleton District School Board um, trustee. No, not a trustee. A trans. Uh, she is the trans and gender diverse student support coordinator. I'm assuming this is a paid position. Your tax dollars hard at work. Again, let me repeat this. It's a long title. Ottawa Carleton District School Board. Trans and Gender Diverse Student Support Coordinator, Sarah Savoya. On Good Friday, well, the Catholic and Protestant Good Friday, my Good Friday, Orthodox Christian Good Friday coming up this, uh, the day after tomorrow. But uh, last Friday, Sarah Savoya, the Trans and Gender Diverse Student Support Coordinator, claimed on one of the most holiest days in the Christian calendar that Jesus Christ was a drag queen who tells stories to children. A reminder that, uh, she said, here's a reminder that Jesus himself was a radical activist and a drag queen. She tweeted this out, adding that he was also not white. Along with the tweet, she shared a meme showing an illustration of Jesus with children with a text saying, oh, look, it's a man in a dress telling stories to children. When asked about Savoya's post, Harvest Bible Church leader, Pastor Dr. Aaron Rock, told True North, the very notion that Jesus dressed as a woman so he could entertain children is offensive to all Christians and unbecoming a public official. Rock explained that Jesus' clothing matched with the Jews, Jewish customs of his day for men as evidenced in the gambling away of his clothing to Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross. He is both 100% God, ensuring he lived his life on earth with absolute holiness, and 100% man, living his life in accordance with God's creational design for a human male. This is not the first time that the progressive education official who uses they, she pronouns shared controversial statements on social media. In October 2020, uh, October 2022, she tweeted, if the religion referring to Catholicism, if that religion cannot change its practice of teaching children that there is something wrong with them because of their sexual orientation, then we should stop that religion from having a separate education system. Savoya has also posted in and shared posts that are supportive of the teaching of gender ideology and critical race theory in classrooms while criticizing those who oppose wokeism. All right. Uh, someone wanted to call in about... Uh, Disney. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have time to get your call. We are out of time for that, but um, tomorrow we will be back and we'll uh, we'll free up some time for calls again. All right. When we come back, the cult of climate change. Tony Heller, founder of RealClimateScience.com, will be here. Climate change responsible for all of these home runs we're seeing in baseball, apparently. We'll discuss on the other side. Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM.
The Cult of Climate Change on The Richard Serrett Show. All right, welcome back. I had to check twice to make sure this wasn't a Babylon Bee story. And uh, I'm sad to report it is not. This is the real deal. This is reported in Natural News. Defending health, life, and liberty. Giving patients who are undergoing invasive surgery anesthesia to quell their pain is, wait for it, bad for the planet. You see, this is the why we call it the cult of climate change. New research presented by Dr. Mohamed Fayed at the recent annual conference of the American Society of Anesthesiologists claims that delivering one hour of surgical anesthesia to a patient is the equivalent of driving a car 470 miles in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. In order to save the planet from global, global warming, Fayed stated, lowering the flow of anesthetic gas to patients is critical. <laughs> wow. Tony Heller is the founder of RealClimateScience.com. He joins us right now. Hey, Tony, how are you? I'm good, Richard. How about you? I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, anesthesia, that's a, I, I get, what's in, in anesthesia that, uh, the, the, that could cause greenhouse, is that a greenhouse gas? Well, I mean, what, what they're going at, they're going after nitrous oxide, ah. which is, you know, they, they created these completely fake stories about a couple of, of gases, one of them's methane, which they've used to attack the meat industry. And then they have nitrous oxide, which now they're using to attack um, um, anesthesia. But um, neither of them are significant greenhouse gases on Earth. Um, they're both ex in extremely small quantities in the atmosphere, and they have no measurable impact on the greenhouse effect. In fact, climate modelers don't even really bother to use them because their impact is so small. So they just once again they've just created this completely fake story about another gas and are using it to drive their anti-human agenda. The problem is that these people hate people, and any excuse they can using. Um, their, their fake stories about global warming they'll use to hurt other people. Well, that's precisely it. This is an anti-human agenda, and that's why it's a death cult. Um, according to this, Mohammed Fayed, he went on to say, uh, patient care will not suffer in any way by reducing the use of anesthesia during surgery. Patients, patients need, to, need suffer to suffer through pain, he suggested, because up, up to 0.1% of the world's carbon emissions come from anesthesia, and he considers this to be too high right there that's all you need to know about the death cult of climate change um it's all right for humans to suffer if we can reduce um greenhouse gases by you know by 0.1 percent then just suffer through your surgery but then he goes on to talk about treating cancer patients well not not fayed but uh, another study treating cancer patients also contributing to global warming this is suggested by another study published in the american cancer cancer society journal back in 2020 what on earth when it comes to cancer uh, treating cancer uh what does that have to do with climate change it doesn't have anything to do with it it's just like i said these people are they hate humans and any excuse they can they can come up with these wildly irrational 
um, rationalizations to to pursue their hatred of human beings. They don't have anything to do with science, and they don't have anything to do with reality. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to see here. I'm trying to make some sense out of it. Um, I, I think it has to do with like people driving to a, a cancer treatment center. Maybe uh, it's increasing the carbon footprint. I don't know. I guess they look at what the upshot of all this is. They look at humans as a carbon footprint that must be eliminated. I mean, that's pretty much the gist of it, isn't it? Yeah, it's other humans, though, not themselves. And they, they have the opportunity to eliminate, you know, to reduce the, the carbon footprint of human beings on their own anytime they want, but they don't do that. Instead, we have these people like Bill Gates um, flying around in their private jets telling other people to eat insects and um, stay in their homes. Tony Heller, again, founder of RealClimateScience.com, is here. Tony, what's happening with these wind turbines? Why are they falling? Well, the whole point of a wind turbine is to collect energy from the wind. And um, the more motion they have, the more energy they collect. So the, and the more, um, the more energy they can pull out of the wind, the more electricity they'll produce. So the whole point of them is to absorb a lot of energy from the wind, which necessarily puts lots of stress on the blades and on the, um, the, the tower itself and then the bearings and the motor, it puts huge amounts of stress on everything. And that's the whole point of them. And, and of course, like all materials, they suffer consequences from being put under so much stress. And it's not expected. My most turb- wind turbines are expected to break down within 20 years. And we're starting to see that now. This has been going on. This nonsense has been going on for a long time. Um, these structures are suffering a lot of stress. They're cracking and they're falling apart. Always a pleasure. Uh, what um, What are you working on these days up at uh, realclimatescience.com? Um, I've been busy with engineering projects recently. Um, everything's so crazy right now. It's um, it's really hard to keep up with the climate stuff as well. I think I'm going to make a video later, just sort of generic climate news about all the insanity going on in the climate energy world. I think some of this um, stuff you sent me about wind turbines will probably be included in that. Fantastic. All right. Tony? You have a great rest of the week, and we'll talk again next Wednesday. Okay, thanks. You too, Richard. Tony Hiller, founder of RealClimateScience.com. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. And uh, we will get to that um, baseball story and the tie-in with uh, global warming next week with Tony. I promise. 
All right, coming up, hour two, we'll speak with uh, yet another Toronto mayoral candidate, Nia Singh. We'll be here. He's a lawyer born in Toronto to uh, Indo-Guyanese and Afro-Bermudian parents, and uh, he ran for mayor in 2018 and 2022. He's going to throw his hat in the ring again. Of course, the by-election coming up June 26th, and he'll be here to tell us uh, about how he plans on keeping the TTC safer, among other things. Also, we'll speak with Brad Hunter, Toronto Sun uh, crime specialist and uh, columnist, to talk about this Florida professor of criminology that uh, left his teaching position after being accused of fudging crime and race data to make it appear racism is worse than it actually is. And of course, we'll round things out with This Day in Rock History with Jeremiah Tittle, co-host of The 500. That's all up and coming. Hour two of The Richard Serrett Show gets underway right after these. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption. This is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Meaning we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this gun with through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. Welcome to Hour 2 of The Richard Serrett Show. If you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot, but don't despair. Still, plenty of great programming coming your way in Hour 2, including This Day in Rock History, Last Order of Business with Jeremy, or sorry, Jeremiah. It's a it's almost a brand new segment, so it'll take me a while to get all the, uh, the wrinkles out, but it's Jeremiah Tittle, co-host of the uh, 500 and uh, we'll talk about this day in rock history. It was on this date in 1976. Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band released really what was their breakthrough album. It was a, a live album called Live Bullet. And uh, previous to that, uh, Bob Seger, who's a terrific tunesmith, had been kind of languishing, um, was was a, was a huge uh, phenom in his native Michigan. But outside there, he really didn't get the attention I think he deserved. But it all changed on this date in 1976 with the release of Live Bullet. Uh, Brad Hunter will be here, national crime columnist with the Toronto Sun, also used to write for the New York Post, and of course, uh, author of some best-selling true crime books, including Inside the Mind of John Wayne Gacy, the real-life clown killer. He'll be here as well. All right, as you well know, Torontonians going to the polls again on June 26th for a a mayoral election, and... um, from time to time, we're introducing you to some some of the uh, the candidates. I think we've had four or five on so far, and we're going to introduce you to another gentleman running for mayor right now. Nia Singh is a lawyer born in Toronto to Indo-Guyanese and Afro-Bermudian parents, and he is uh, he ran previously for mayor in 2018 and 2022, and he's back to try it again. Nia Singh, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, first, I want to uh, let people know about your website because then they can get more details uh, about your campaign. It's electniasing.ca, and I'm going to I'm going to uh, spell uh, your first name is K N I A Sing S I N G H elect nia sing dot c a k n i a s i n g h and uh first of all um you've got a a pretty comprehensive plan i think to uh to make the ttc safer so i'm just going to turn it over to you uh, nia and allow you to kind of uh elaborate on on what you because this is of course of huge concern right now to torontonians they don't feel safe on the ttc what is your plan well, my plan is to really utilize what the TTC has, utilize the employees, the resources, the funding they currently have. So it's not a plan that's going to take two to three years or cost additional money. And one of the major central focal points of the plan is a fit to ride plan. And that essentially is when you have TTC employees um, walking up and down the TTC, uh, walking up and down the subway, evaluating riders and, and determining if they are fit to ride. And if they believe somebody's not fit to ride, that's when they can call in a special constable or somebody via walkie-talkie, and they can interview that person. Just say, hey, how are you doing? Are you okay? Do you need any assistance? Whether they're intoxicated, whether they're experiencing mental health issues, that is a proactive approach to ensure the TTC is safer. And actually, I was just thinking about it yesterday. The GO train doesn't have many incidents of violence, but the TTC does. And I think that has a lot to do with the GO train ticket fare collectors walking up and down, making sure everybody has paid their fare. So that's one of the central points of, of my plan. All right. And uh, you also want to provide what you call positive messaging and music through the TTC intercom system. It's interesting because there was a, a, a subway system in the United States. They're, they're pumping in classical music. Uh, I mean, is that kind of the idea you want to create a more positive atmosphere um, would you, you explain what you mean by providing a positive message and music through the intercom, intercom system? Absolutely. Many people may not realize, but we've done this in Toronto before. In the mid-90s, there was a problem at Kennedy Station where a lot of youth would hang out and they'd loiter and sometimes they would get into fights and sometimes there was a serious injury caused. And what the TTC chose to do is play classical music throughout the station there. And that actually reduced and deterred the loitering. So it's basically a repeat of what the TTC has done already, but just reminding people that, yeah, we can play music, but we can also provide positive messaging. And I'm thinking of stuff like, um, you know, do you see somebody in need? Um, have you been experiencing any mental health issues? Even common um, like phrases that people can listen to and actually make them feel good about themselves and know how to resolve problems. So I think when we hear all these announcements and we hear the dead silence in the TTC, that time can be used giving people information that can help them and their family and their surroundings stay safe. Uh, what about your the uh, the idea of reinstating something called the Streets to Homes Outreach? What is that about? So there was a period of time um, in April 2021 that the TTC special constables were patrolling the areas of the TTC. And that was between Tuesdays. It was on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 9 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. So it, it seemed like a pilot project. It was where they would engage people who needed support and they would connect them with um, shelters and food vouchers and helped individuals. But I think that has to be expanded. And 9 a.m. to 2.30 is not the right time. We need this taking place at nighttime, somewhat maybe 8 o'clock to 2 a.m., where there's less uh, riders, but there's more homeless people and people with issues on the TTC. And it should be seven days a week. 
Ideally, it would be 24 hours. But this is a program that actually was in place by the TTC and it needs to be revived. What about the idea of um, um, undercover or non-uniformed police on a rotating basis on whether we're talking about surface transit or um, uh, underground? And I say uh, I say um, non-uniformed police because uh, I've been told that that might be a more effective way. Uh, you know, to deter crime. If you don't know if someone is thinking about committing a crime or a violent act and they're not sure whether there may or not may not be a, a, a Toronto police constable on board, that may cause them to, you know, to, to stop. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts are it's cost prohibitive to have undercover police officers engage in that way. And we don't have a series of planned premeditated crimes taking place in the TTC. What seems to be happening is interactions between people on the TTC who either are frustrated, they're tired, they're hungry, um, and they're getting into interactions. So these are unpredictable situations. By overloading the TTC with undercover officers, I think it might just send the wrong message and maybe certain people would be subject to stops and checks and questioning more than others. What really needs to happen is, again, using the TTC employees that are in place. As far as I've found, there's over 14,000 TTC employees. We know that we used to have ticket fare, multiple ticket collector booths at every station. Now we don't really see that. So where have all those employees gone? I'm sure there's a way that we can access those who are doing jobs that may not be that, I don't want to say that important, but what's taking priority right now is safety on the TTC. So I I wouldn't support undercover officers in that sense, because I really think that the violence problem has to do with homelessness issues, mental health issues. And there may be a minor segment of pre-planned crimes, as we would say, but that can be um, remedied through the TTC special constables and the communications via um, walkie-talkie on, on the TTC properties. Nia Sung, Nia Singh, my apologies, Nia Singh, running for uh, mayor June 26th, running for mayor of Toronto, lawyer, born in Toronto. Uh, electniasingh.ca, the website, K-N-I-A-S-I-N-G-H, electniasingh.ca. Addressing the, the safety of TTC operators, um, is there a concern that some of these confrontations are, are due to uh, fair disputes? And what could be done with regards to that? It has been posited by other candidates, you know, maybe it's time to make the TTC free. And that would that would, uh, you know, uh, alleviate that issue. What are your thoughts? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. I don't think we can make the TTC free at this point because the TTC has a very high budget and they need the operating costs. It's it's a good goal and we can work towards it. 
But I think balancing those who are able to pay and those who can't. So basically, if someone doesn't pay their fare, TTC operators shouldn't feel obliged to jump in and stop and physically detain and get involved in that way. So that would alleviate the pressure in that sense. But I think reducing fares is a very good step. And if they don't want to reduce the base fare, reduce the Metro Pass or reduce the uh, Presto Pass because basically it works out to only if you use the TTC every single day um, and maybe on the weekends are you actually getting savings. We can cut that TTC Pass in half and that would incentivize people to actually use it more. So I think there's a balancing approach. Reduce it for those who can't pay. Don't prosecute those who are, are trying to get on because it's not worth the physical confrontations. But also, you know, maybe even reduce the tickets so that when people get the ticket, you know, for $450 or so for not paying their fare, it's not so cost prohibitive that they're trying to run away or cause violence. So I think a balanced approach on cost of TTC, but not going fully free because they're those who can afford to pay. And one thing I will say, I was in Nova Scotia recently, and when you buy a transfer, it's good for four hours. Mm -hmm. Something as simple as that, making the TTC transfer available for, for four hours that means someone or a family can go do their groceries on one fare and come back on that same fare. And that would actually save a lot of money and the stress of trying to fare evade because that four-hour transfer would go a long way. Toronto mayoral candidate Nia Singh. We'll uh, come back. More of our conversation on The Richard Serrett Show in about three minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Nia Singh is a lawyer born in Toronto, and he's running for mayor of Toronto. Of course, the by-election happening June 26th, and uh, we've been discussing his um, his ideas to combat violence and uh, crime on the TTC. Let me ask you, are, are you a regular user of the TTC? Not currently, but I was very heavily when I was in law school, uh, prior to law school, throughout my teenage years, so I'm very familiar with how the TTC works and what it's like to fall asleep on the TTC, what it's like to not have enough change and all those things. I'm very familiar with it. Would you commit as mayor to regularly using the TTC? Absolutely, because um, with the gridlock our city is experiencing, until that's fixed, uh, the TTC is one of the better ways, especially the subway lines. So I'd be in favor of, of the Young University line, um, the, the eastbound, westbound, Bloor line, but absolutely using the TTC. And um, because I remember what it's like to be seeing multiple buses in a row and missing the last one and saying, oh, I got to wait 15, 20 minutes now. I would like to see properly scheduled service where you don't have back-to-back streetcars. You don't have back-to-back buses and you pace them out so that everyone has a chance to utilize. Uh, you studied law at Osgood. You got your law degree at Osgood. Um, yes. You are also uh, the co-founder of the Osgood Society Against Institutional Injustice. And that was a group that was instrumental in uh, challenging carding and arbitrary detention. But I want to ask you about street checks and carding and, and let's shift things to the overall crime and violence in situation in Toronto. And um, I mean, obviously, when we had street checks and the police, by and large, found it to be a useful tool, but with indiscriminate use, you have obviously there were abuses. And so but we did see between 2005 when it was instituted and uh, up, up until 2014 when it was uh, done away with, we did see a pretty stark reduction in shootings and gun violence and so forth. Uh, is there a way to bring back street checks and carding that balances, obviously, um, you know, 
rights of, 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 of individuals, uh, but still allows police to, to use, to use this, this valuable tool. So just to clarify the statistics, um, 2005 was the year of the gun, the summer of the gun, right? And, or 2006. Um, and it was, street checks were at its peak at that time. Um, carding has been going on since I was a child. So this is not a new phenomenon. It's the arbitrary detention of people who are not suspected of any crime and they're just being stopped because of the way they look, specifically their color. So the correlation between street checks and violence is nil, it's zero. It's something that the media seems to hang on to because it sounds like it makes sense. But for me, as an example, um, when I got my records from the police, I was 40 years old. I had never been charged, never been arrested, um, never involved in cr- criminal activity. Yet I was stopped over 30 times and I had over 11 cards located in that database. And in that says I was born in Jamaica twice, that I'm not police friendly, that I was eight foot one, 141 pounds. So these were all just things that are used indiscriminately, illegally, and it was just wrong. Um, What reduces violence is opportunity and education. And what we find, there's a very strong connection between the school suspensions and expulsions and the levels of violence, especially with the Mike Harris years in the 90s when he started cutting services. So all those arts programs that were cut, you found people with idle hands doing idle work. But when young people are suspended from school and they're left to their own devices, they end up picking up, unfortunately, bad habits. They get disengaged. They feel like they don't belong. They get disinterested. They drop out. They start doing alternative things for getting money because without an education, you're not going to get a a well-paying job. And that is what leads to violence. So what we need is a more, I guess, comprehensive approach to reducing violence. Stiffer penalties and more police never solve violence because criminals know they're going to go to jail if they get caught with a gun. But if they are taking that chance to use a gun, they're not concerned with the penalty. So that's not a deterrent. A deterrent is, look, you can have a career, you can buy a home, you can start a family, and you don't need to do crime to do this. Um, That's the most important piece. We've had so many studies, Roots of Youth Violence Report and other reports that show that more policing and stiffer sentences are not the way, but we choose to ignore them because it seems like the quick fix is more cops, more boots on the ground, law and order. Like That's what everyone says, but they don't realize that just keeps the status quo. It maintains what's happening. If we want to reduce, we have to pull those roots up from the bottom. And because I ran a recording studio for 20 years, I've been in touch with so many young people at that time who were on the cusp of violence, but I know being in my studio and, and doing work kept them away from it, gave them opportunities and gave them incentives to do something other than crime. Well, those are not quick fixes, though. We're talking about changing the culture, uh, creating more opportunities. You know, we, we hear about, you know, let's spend more money on programs, but we need we need to fix things right now. I mean, yes, we could adri- address the root issues, but, you know, we have people being randomly stabbed. We have uh, you know, people being randomly shot. We have uh, people who just don't feel safe on the streets or on the TTC. We need to we need to address that now. If we're talking about, you know, creating more opportunities, that's great. I mean, but that doesn't fix things now. That could be a 5, 10, 15 year fix. Well, I can tell you, Richard, if the city had any interest in stopping violence, they would have taken me up in 2018 when I put out my 10 point plan to reduce violence when I ran for mayor. 
And the 10 points, the first one was to freeze all school suspensions. The second one was for Toronto Social Services to provide conflict resolution services for people who are having disputes. Um, three was to identify that the causes of gun violence accurately. Four was to create city neighborhood exchange partnerships so people in Poor areas of the city can now exchange with people in, uh, in more affluent areas to see what it's like to actually have a stable life. Um, funds and number five was the funds allocated for community programs should actually go to the people who need it, not just salaries. And we find that all of these programs, we throw money at them, but the money just goes to paying salaries rather than to the people who actually need it. So we need solutions now, but we need an approach that is more humanistic and more encompassing. And I'm not saying, you know, we're going to hug everybody and things are going to get better. But what I'm saying is if you start from a young age and even with people now who are involved in criminal activity, if they know they have support, opportunities and options, it's going to be much different than what they're doing now. I, I can tell you, I followed a 14 year old girl who has been, uh, you know, she wanted to assist in my campaigns early out. I've, I've helped her with criminal issues, but she was such an innocent soul in the very beginning when I met her. And over time, just the way the school couldn't understand her, her she, she, her father was killed when she was young. Her mother's a drug addicted and been in jail her whole life. She was raised by her grandmother, but the inability of the school to really understand her and support her left her to her own devices. And as much as I was there and other community members were there, you can't be there with someone all the time. So what ends up happening is she's now out of her house on the street, hanging out with other kids who are doing bad things. And eventually that behavior trickles on. So we have to intervene in these people's lives at any stage they're at to provide them that support. That's the only thing that's going to reduce violence. But one major thing that causes violence is mental health and drug addiction. And the drug addiction and mental health are fueling um, violence and crime within people who are addicted alone. But then it also fuels the drug trade where people who sell drugs are now competing potentially over territory or they're robbing each other. So it's a trickle effect and it's a chain reaction effect. So we really have to get to the root of mental health, addictions and community supports to solve the violence problem. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Nia will take another time. I'll come back. A few minutes remain. Nia Singh running for mayor. Elect Nia Singh.ca. Nia, K-N-I-A, Singh, S-I-N-G-H. Elect Nia Singh.ca. Back with more of our conversation right after these. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. 
And a few minutes remain with Toronto mayoral candidate Nia Singh, electniasingh.ca, K-N-I-A, Nia Singh, S-I-N-G-H, electniasingh.ca. Nia, we've talked about the TTC. We've talked a little bit about crime. I'm going to turn over the next four or five minutes here. And uh, if there are any other um, issues you'd like to address that you're, you'll be addressing out on the campaign trail, um, I'll give you that time right now. Go ahead. Thank you. And just before we shift into that, I just want to speak about crime a little bit more. Many people don't know, but right now our homicides are down 42.9%. Last year at this time, we had 21 murders. Right now we have 12. Our shootings are down 86.7%. Last year we had 15. Now we have two. So, you know, safety is still an issue. And I, as mayor, I would do everything in my power to reduce violence because that's what I've always done since I was a young person, but specifically from the age of 19, I've been pushing hard to reduce violence in the city. Uh, but violence is down and we need to find out what has been going right that has brought this down and we need to continue it and then enhance it. Because if we're doing this good under these circumstances, I'm sure if we take some other approaches, it'll eventually even get down even further. Um, but when it comes to you know my plans for being mayor, I really want to point this out. Um, most people in Toronto may not know me as the person. They may see me on CP24 or on the news and doing reports and speaking on issues with the community and policing and violence. But as as I am as a person, I'm very down to earth and I want people to kind of get a feel for who I am. Um, as you've said, I was born and raised in Toronto. My father's Indian Guyanese. My mother's African descent Bermudian. I grew up around Fairview Mall. So I grew up in the Don Mill Shepherd area. I went to Forest Manor Public School, I went to Don Valley Junior High, and I went to Georges Henry Academy um, High School. And while I was at Georges Henry Academy, I was selected to be part of a group called the Henry's Understanding Group of Students. Um, my teacher saw something in me where I was one of the peer counselors, so I did that type of work with, with students. And then out of high school, um, while in high school, I was part of a dance group. I, I, you know, I love hip-hop, I love music, I have a fa- musicians in my family background. And um, I ended up starting a recording studio right out of high school. I did a year of college and I felt, you know, this wasn't working for me. And I said, let me, you know, be an entrepreneur and exercise my skills. And I successfully ran this studio from 1993 to just when I entered um, university and law school. And it was really it was really eye opening because when I was providing uh, placements for students, I started hearing all of their issues and I started realizing there was a huge gap between the average citizen and government. They didn't understand how to access government. They didn't understand how to advocate for their rights. So I made a decision in 1997 to run for city council when the city was uh, forming, the mega city was forming because I was afraid that all the change in resources would even undercut those who are marginalized even more. And since then, I realized this is a game of politics, which involves money and connections. And I said, okay, when I get older and when I get more established, I'll do this again. But in 2010, I entered the race again. And that's when I first started university. And I've continuously been putting my hat in the ring because I strongly believe that we need politicians that aren't politicians. We need people representing the members of society who actually care, who actually come from the same type of background, and who actually have creative and new ideas, not the same old career politicians who come from wealthy families who've done this just as a blueprint. We need people who genuinely want to make a difference. And yeah. you know, I'll, I'll open it back to you since I'm, I'm speaking, but yeah, if you have any comments on what I've said. 
Well, listen, we're, we're out of time, but we'll, uh, we'll do this again. We've got a few months, obviously, until the, um, the election. So if you're, if you're uh, available, I'd love to have you back on and we'll discuss some more issues. It's been a great interview, and I really thank you for having me. And uh, thanks to all the people. And Toronto will affect the GTA, and it will affect Mississauga. So I will do my best as mayor to ensure the entire GTA is safe and the entire GTA prospers. ElectNiaSingh.ca, the website, K-N-I-A. Nia Singh, S-I-N-G-H, electniasingh.ca. All right, thank you again. And uh, when we come back, Brad Hunter, national crime columnist with the Toronto Sun, will be here. Stay with us. Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. All right, welcome back. It uh, looks like Brad Hunter has uh, been detained. <laughs> I don't mean that as uh, has been as in detained by the police. He is the uh, the national crime columnist with the Toronto Sun, after all. Uh, but he's not here. So um, he's out chasing a hot lead on a story, no doubt. But um, why don't we open up the phone lines, Jacob? 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600. And um, we can talk about... Anything you'd like. You heard my conversation with Toronto mayoral candidate Nia Singh a short while ago. Very impressive young man running for mayor. And uh, as I think a pretty comprehensive strategy, or at least it's a good start. Let's put it that way. A good start to um, ensure a safer TTC for all. Um. Two eight nine two seven five ninety six hundred. All right, lines are open. Let me just get it connected here on my end. Here we go. All right, and start show as host, and away we go. Okay. Uh, what else? Oh, this we were going to talk about this criminology professor with uh, Brad Hunter. This was a piece he wrote on the Toronto Sun, but it's also. Uh, making headlines again in the Washington Examiner, criminology professor changed the data to make people seem more racist. And um, this is a, it speaks a lot to the social sciences in general. And the Washington Examiner, this is a David Fredoso, uh, who is the online opinion editor at the Examiner, David Fredoso, online opinion editor, Washington Examiner, writing about the social sciences suffering what is known as a replication crisis. That is the results of as many as two thirds of all previous studies cannot be produced, reproduced rather. They cannot be reproduced. Two thirds of all previous social sciences studies cannot be reproduced. What it means is that when you hear about a new study, there's good a good chance it's bunk. Why does this happen? He says one reason is that academics feel intense pressure to publish or perish, which incentivizes sensationalism, the manipulation of data, and even fabrication. Add to this the incentives involved in race grifting, and you have a perfect storm of academic fraud on your hands. And this has to do with a $190,000 a year criminology professor named Eric Stewart, who has just abruptly departed Florida State University under a cloud. Uh, His story is interesting because it reveals how long he got away with publishing false results 
His earliest now retracted paper is from 2006 and how the first reaction among many colleagues was to circle the wagons. Uh, in 2011, Stewart co-authored a study purported to show that as the black and Hispanic populations grew, the public increasingly demanded longer discriminatory sentences for black and Hispanic criminals. The problem is the data from the study showed no such thing. In other words, he fudged the data. All right. I want to grab a quick call here. And uh, who do we have? Someone calling in from Hamilton. Hello there. Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show. Who's this? Oh, it's Richard again. Hey, Richard. Hi there. Yes. Um, Maybe this is small potatoes to you, but I've read some books by Diane Francis. She's a business uh, professor in Canada. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know Diane. She's talked about, okay, she's talked about um, multimillionaires, multi-billionaires. Some of them run several companies at the same time. They could easily look at our national health care system and point out all the inefficiencies and waste and corruption and and uh, show us how to make the thing run properly. But then, of course, uh, the politicians would all yell and scream. But anyway, I just wanted to point that out, how dumbed down we are, how we accept such poor service for our tax dollars. Yes, I um, I think that's not a bad idea. Having someone with a, a better business sense take a look at, as you say, inefficiencies, or as Diane Francis writes, inefficiencies in the system, they are no doubt legion. Um and I, I have two uh, sisters who were nurses, and I have many friends and, and um, uh, colleagues and so forth who worked in healthcare. And if you sit down and talk with them, they'll tell you about all the waste and inefficiencies just at, the, at their level that they witness. So, yes, when I said no small potatoes, I meant you probably know this already. No. Uh, well, yes, I, I think we all uh, we all know it, but it, it can't be repeated often enough, Richard. And I thank you for uh, for offering that up again. Yes, we have we have a lot of work to do in terms of uh, reining in 13 healthcare systems. Yeah, We're, we uh, we have, there's a lot of waste. Richard, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, if you called in and you didn't get on, my apologies, but uh, we'll uh, we'll open up the lines again tomorrow. But we've got to move along because. Jeremiah Tittle is waiting in the wings with This Day in Rock History. That's next right here on The Richard Serrett Show. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right. Welcome back. Hey, what can I say? It's live radio and we just got to roll with the punches and move things around when need be. Um, Jeremiah Tittle was supposed to be here for this day in rock history. And um, I don't know what's happened to him, but we do have Brad Hunter, (laughs) (laughs) Brad Hunter, national crime columnist with the Toronto Sun, author of Inside the Mind of John Wayne Gacy, the real life killer clown. Hey, Brad, welcome. How are you? Very well. Thanks, Richard. How are you keeping? I'm well, thank you. Now, you strike me as a as a, a, a fan of rock and roll. Uh, maybe you can do that this week in rock history. <laughs> That's OK. Sure, sure. What do you need to know? <laughs> now, we, we, you know, on actually, just a quick aside, we were going to talk about this on this day back in 1976. Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, they released really the, a pivotal album. It's considered the greatest one of the greatest live albums of all time called Live Bullet. And, uh, you know, for like 10 years, this guy sort of languished in relative obscurity. He was huge in, in Michigan and in Detroit, but outside there, he never managed to break through 
until, of course, this album came out. Anyway, that's just a quick aside. Are you a Bob a, mon- a monster album. And, yes. and, I, and I remember when it came out. So that, that's dating me a little bit, but a monster album. Yes, indeed. All right. Let's talk about um, this criminology professor. You wrote about it, wrote about it in the Toronto Sun today. This Eric Stewart had a hundred and ninety thousand dollar a year gig at uh, Florida State University. He wrote this study way back in 2011 and nobody challenged him on it until I guess one of the co-authors um, more recently called him out. And even then, the um, the prof- the uh, his colleagues at the university sort of circled the wagons and gave him the benefit of the doubt. But he was fudging the data on this um, this study, which well, you tell me, what was the study about? Well, the study was uh, generally and uh, his area of quote unquote expertise, which I think we could probably lose use that term fairly loosely now, uh, was on the, the rate of incarceration of black and Hispanic uh, um, convicted criminals, sort of things, and the public's uh, view of them now. He had asserted that the increase in population in black and Hispanic individuals had uh, torqued, uh, you know, the racist views towards them. Now, what he had, what he had done was uh, he had you know, essentially done his own gerrymandering. And the, the, the initial sample was, I think, more than. 300 counties in the U.S., and he'd whittled it down to, you know, f- you know, 50 and change, which gave him the result he desired, which is to show that more people were racist. Uh, the, 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 the other aspect of this was why this data, this fudge data, uh, was allowed to go unchecked since 2011 until one of the co-authors finally said, wait a minute, this, this isn't right. This isn't what the report found. Uh, and then even then, um, as I say, the, his colleagues circled the wagons and tried to give him the benefit of the doubt. What does this say about the social sciences? Uh, the social sciences, I think, you know, as we all know, Richard, to an extent, you know, are, you know, are a complete mess in a lot of ways because, uh, there is, you know, and as as his Stewart's co-author who blew the whistle on the, the 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 data fudging points out that there's a lot of money in skewing a study, you know, in in, in that particular direction right now, given the significant. Mount, you know, the billions being poured into uh, uh, diversity, inclusion and uh, and equity. Now, with that much at stake, you're going to get charlatans. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, so right. it's, and and, you know, a lot of the times in these uh, these sorts of situations, particularly academia, you're going to get, uh, uh, you know, groupthink. And so there, they would see probably nothing wrong with the with what he presented. Right. Well, now we have to we have to second guess everything, I guess, if it's one of these social sciences studies. I was reading the Washington Examiner where the 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 online opinion editor there was saying maybe up to two thirds of uh, social science studies 
uh, I mean, they can't be repeated, um, which is like a hallmark of, you know, rigorous scientific uh, study. If it can't be, if it's not repeatable, it's no good. And so two thirds of these studies um, may be suspect. Well, that's that's right. And, and and I think, I mean, you have to start with the base position of the old Latin phrase, qua bono, who benefits? And, and, you know, is it in this time and place, is it in their interest to be uh, academically uh, rigorous or is it, you know, better for their circumstances to, uh, you know, tilt the board a bit, if you would? Well, the good news is, at least in this particular jurisdiction, that uh, that this individual was studying and was claiming, you know, that it's rife with racism and and so forth. It's not true. It's not as well, at least at, at the very least, it's not as racist <laughs> a jurisdiction as as uh, Professor Eric Stewart uh, led us on to believe. Um, very quickly, uh, Brad, how do we get a copy of John Wayne, Inside the Mind of John Wayne Gacy, and also Cold-Blooded Murder, Shocking True Stories of Killers and Psychopaths. You can get that at uh, Amazon.ca, Chapters Indigo. Uh, You have to order it that way, or Barnes & Noble, or any of your other fine online retailers. All right. Can you give us a little tease, maybe, what you're working on these days in terms of, uh, is there another true crime book in the works? I'm pondering it. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pondering it. I'm doing a number of different things. I'm doing, uh, I'm, I appear uh, regularly on a, a crime podcast in Ireland. And, uh, you know, I've been writing a lot about the mob again, you know, just, you know, more toward you know, New York City and whatnot, as, you know, vis-a-vis Toronto, uh, uh, with you know the kind of uh, the kind of things that happened in New York, how things went down the tube, how they came back up, and the lessons that uh, the Greater Toronto area might learn from that. All right, fantastic, Brad. Always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. You take care of yourself. You too, Brad Hunter, national crime columnist with the Toronto Sun. All right, my apologies. We didn't get to uh, this. We do this day in rock history, but we will. Next week, I give you my my seal. My my word is my bond. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Declan, and Jacob. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. 
The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.